Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The content of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward, but we hope that listeners will sit with this discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversations to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if needed, turn off the podcast and consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to the Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. Today on Good Sex, we are joined by Rafael Rodriguez, NYU's Associate Vice President and Dean of Students. As Dean of Students, he is the Principal Student Advocate and provides guidance and directions to all students at NYU. Dean Rodriguez works with his team and partners across the university to strengthen community and belonging at NYU. Dean Rodriguez, would you like to share your pronouns and then anything else that maybe we've left out that you think our listeners might want to know about you? Absolutely. My name is Rafael Rodriguez, but you can call me Raf. I use he him pronouns. And something I would share about me is that I'm a New Yorker through and through. So mm. although I spent quite some time in Vermont, I was born in the Bronx, not oh, too far okay. from here. So being here at NYU as the Dean of Students is, is very much so a homecoming yeah. for many reasons. I get to be back in New York City, a place that I love. I get to be back in New York, a city that I uh, admire, and then my my baby gets to grow up in New York, yeah. where I grew up. So that's, oh, that's yeah. a pretty special place. Yeah. So mm. I love my time here in New York and at NYU. Awesome. What's what's one thing that you really enjoy about being part of the NYU community specifically? I love our students, and and I think any dean of students who you ask this question to, they'll say as part of the job they love their students. <laughs> but I really do love our students. I think their perspectives are so unique and diverse, but also well thought out. And mm. they're open and flexible. Uh, it's not as it doesn't always come naturally as, as it doesn't for most of us. But when engaged genuinely with a with a sense of empathy and care, our students are so open to different perspectives and mm. able to change so long as we have the capacity and the ability to actually meet them where they are and engage yeah. them from a place of care. And that's so unique. And our students are, I think, brilliant. I think oh, yes. mm-hmm. I yeah. agree. So we, we have a set of questions mm-hmm. that we, we are going to ask, but we want this to be an equitable space. So you mm-hmm. can feel free to turn any of the questions around on us. If, you know, if there's something that we've not brought up, you can bring that up as well. And any, any questions we, you know. I like that. <laughs> Let's turn the tables on you on some of these. Yeah, okay. absolutely. <laughs> so our first question, who was or is your crush and it could be like literary or musician or TV personality. Any crushes current or past <laughs> that you want to share with us? Current is my wife and only my wife. And that's the only <laughs> answer we will give. Okay. I was thinking about who my first crush was mm-hmm. when you asked that question. Yeah. It was. It's a little bit of an embarrassing story. I, her name was Jeanette and she was in my first grade class. And I remember because I was very terribly shy, but it was Valentine's Day and I got the courage to write her a little poem Mm -hmm. and I gave it to her along with like a little gift that we Mm -hmm. had in the house. I just repurposed. My sister's very popular. She got tons of gifts. So I would just repurpose one of her. You were already sustainable back then. (laughs) I was. I was recycling. And the bad thing was that my sister learned about this crush and she went to school with Jeanette's older sister. So they concocted these plans to just have Jeanette come over randomly oh, no. to the apartment where we lived mm-hmm. uh, in a random afternoon and 
introduced us to one another, and we were both mortified. We were like, <laughs> we were like six, seven-year-olds just staring at each other with two teenagers who thought they were the most clever people in the world. <laughs> we were so awkward. It was so uncomfortable. It lasted like forever. And I ignored her, and she ignored me for the rest of the time <laughs> we were in elementary school. It was not my sister's finest moment. Yeah. Not, good intentions, yeah. but good intentions. not good impact on you, perhaps. Yeah, but no. maybe it taught you how to like sit with discomfort. It definitely did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for quite some time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Tell us how you have developed personal boundaries and the process of learning to communicate as you've grown up. Oh, I, I appreciate that. I, the process of developing boundaries for me in all forms of relationships was was a journey. And it wasn't an easy one. And I think particularly for me, it wasn't an easy one because many of my notions around boundaries and relationships come from my cultural upbringing as a mm-hmm. Latino male, particularly when thinking about family. And some of the notions that I think are I'm very proud of and I think serve our community well and serve me and my family well, but also have a downside to them, right? Mm. So the concepts of family always being first. And and, and that means inherently that uh, there's very little boundaries mm. there. And I think for me, for many reasons, as I began to focus on my education and my early career, I needed to figure out how I could do it all. And mm. as you know, what that means is mm. a realization that I can't, can't do, do it all. It all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And setting some clear boundaries about what I'm able to do how much I can give, and being comfortable with that, but also being comfortable with understanding that that might not be received with the intention that I have was that was the hardest thing. Mm -hmm. Enforcing the boundaries. Yeah, Yeah. enforcing it. So it wasn't so much – well, first it was difficult to sort of figure out who am I and what are my needs, Yeah, separate and dependent from other people's needs. But then how do I reinforce that, Mm -hmm. knowing that the impact may strain a relationship? Mm -hmm let alone maybe go against some cultural norms. Mm -hmm. And those cultural norms exist across all types of relationships, familial, but personal, romantic friendships, right? So that's always the hardest thing. It's been a journey and it's an ongoing journey. I I like to think, if you ask my wife and even my (laughs) friends, that I tend to be very clear on what those boundaries are and name them explicitly as a boundary. Mm-hmm. It's taken me time to honor that. And so I, when I share it, I share with pride, right? I'm like, yeah. oh, yeah. Uh, I can be understanding when the friend or family member or even my partner sharing some challenges they may be having with boundaries in their relationships, either mm-hmm. with family or friends or, or whatnot. I am always grateful for the ability to say, yeah, from my lens, that would be a boundary for me. And, mm-hmm. and I just would not do that. And to say that with such definitiveness is empowering. Mm-hmm. Because most of my life, I didn't feel like I had the agency to do that. So it's been rather empowering to have those boundaries. And a work in progress. Yes. (laughs) Always. If that wasn't necessarily... Who who pushes those boundaries all the time anyway, you know? Yes. (laughs) I would say, was there, if it wasn't necessarily modeled for you, did you learn about boundaries in like an educational setting? Or was it really like trial and error and really like kind of what, what brought that concept of boundaries to your forefront? Oh, yeah. I... I would say my self-work, particularly in counseling, but also my social justice work, Mm. which allowed me a lot of time to explore deeply the sense of who I am and what makes me who I am, but also the capacity to step back and reflect, again, the complexity of those messages, those rules that we get growing Mm. up and ways in which they can both hurt and harm Mm. and honor those and not have it be just one thing. But it was, for me, I think it was space. So I, I spent quite a bit of my younger professional life, not physically as close to a lot of my friend groups that mm-hmm. I developed while I was an undergrad and my family groups, but we were really much in close connection and I love that. The distance also allowed me to sometimes uh, step in and step out of, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. stepping in and stepping out of allowed me to have perspective mm-hmm. and to reflect. Yeah, And that and some good opportunity to engage in self-work and counseling, I think is what allowed me to mm-hmm. really establish some clear understandings of what serves me, what doesn't serve me, allowed me to reconcile and be very clear about what are some boundaries that may not serve me in the moment, but I'm comfortable with because it may serve someone else and I can give that. And when can I not give that? Yeah. Well, and something else that is really closely related to boundaries is how to communicate about your boundaries or communicate in general, like in conflict. And so I'm wondering how your communication skills have developed and how you feel about engaging in conflict. 
Because I feel like one of the social norms um, around any relationship is that we shouldn't have conflict and conflict is bad. And people have, you know, their own historical reasons for having feelings about conflict. And so communicating and navigating that can be really difficult. Yeah. I appreciate the question. <laughs> it goes, it's many of these are ever-evolving mm -hmm. realities and, mm -hmm. and concepts. I enter a relationship and conversation, and maybe this is because of my upbringing and what I saw growing up, that relationships are, conflict is inherent in relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, and when I do a lot of my restorative practices training, I talk about conflict being a, uh, a restorative practice as being a method of and a tool set for how to navigate conflict mm -hmm. and how sometimes when you have two people in the room, there's just with two people in a room, you'll have disagreement. Sometimes just one person in a room, you'll disagree with yourself. <laughs> so conflict is really just inevitable. My pause and my silence is that a lot of my, my wife and I, a lot of our early relationship and challenges was, uh, I think in part, our perspectives on conflict. I see conflict as good, as challenging, but as a necessary part of a relationship. I don't know that she always agreed with that <laughs> early in our relationship. And that even perspective on conflict led to some conflict. Yeah. Part of what I've learned, and a lot of this has been, again, through my self-work, but also the, the discipline, the practice of, of restorative practices that I mentioned, and restorative mm -hmm. justice, has allowed me the tools to figure out how to communicate impact mm -hmm. and own impact versus displace anger and shame. Mm -hmm. And that has been transformational for me yeah. in terms of how I lead, how I engage with people, and how I, I engage in relationships. It's the ability to say, not that you are bad mm -hmm. or how dare you, but when you share that, here's how that felt for me. Mm -hmm. And to center myself uh, in the impact that I'm saddled with in conflict and to make space for that, but to also receive that when I'm having an impact. Mm -hmm. And that's me at my best. And we're mm -hmm. not always there. And I <laughs> promise you, I'm not always there. Because life changes, you yeah. know, your ability to show up that great. Um, mm -hmm. Circumstances changes. I'm in a relatively newer working environment, right? So I'm still mm -hmm. figuring out how do we do conflict culturally here yeah. and how do I bring my full self and engage mm -hmm. in conflict within our cultural context at NYU, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and, and I feel like that you, you've you brought that culture of restorative justice and restorative practices mm -hmm. to NYU. Can you share sort of what that process has been like for you and and sharing what you've learned previously with, with people in the NYU community and how that's kind of how you're trying to get that into more yeah. of the culture at NYU? Uh, absolutely. I, I will start off by sharing that fundamentally what I think it allows us to do is just have shared language and frameworks for how we understand one another. We're, we're, we're large, we're, we're complex. We mm -hmm. all have stories and histories and much that we bring to the table for good, for bad, and all in between, right? And it gives us a set of tools, framework, and language so that we can engage one another and begin to humanize one another, right? How do we center and focus on relationships as much as we do on the product and, and what comes mm -hmm. out of those relationships. So that can be transformational to who we are and how we engage as a community. And I think that's what most excites me about the possibilities yeah. that exist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it does help on an individual basis as well. I think as much as like maybe the the goal is to have it help with the NYU culture or any organizational mm -hmm. culture, but I think on an individual basis, I started learning about restorative justice and restorative practices three years ago when I started NYU because we have a restorative resolution, and so I'm like, oh, I got to figure out you know how this looks, and so I feel like it does really help to think about things through that lens, mm -hmm. and also to sort of add in, it, it helps to be able to do the counseling, do the work individually, so that way you can regulate your emotions. Right. And so that way when there is conflict, because I know my own past history is like conflict was ignored and, you know, there was always a huge blow up and that created trauma for me. So mm -hmm. conflict was a bad and evil thing. And so it's taken years of practice and work and training and, and doing the work myself to be able to be in a place where I could handle the conflict. So I really appreciate you mm -hmm. bringing, you know, some of that to like an organizational, you know, structure based mm -hmm. as well as the individual. I'm resonating with what you shared so much, and I will echo that sentiment that I think for me growing up, my quietness as the youngest was that I often saw conflict. And my approach and all was that if I can be as still as possible, mm 
mm-hmm. and not engaged and we won't add to what already exists. Mm-hmm. But also my identities as a man of color is uh, I'm always very hyper-conscious and visible around how I display a range of emotions or, or had been. And I think resource practices has given me the tools and language to do that, not just in the workplace, but in relationships. And mm-hmm. I think that's where it has really transformed. You know, I, I think sometimes my family doesn't know what to do with me <laughs> and how I, I bring some stuff up. You know, we, we navigated a very difficult loss a couple of years ago with my sister. Mm. And those moments always bring up difficulty and yeah. challenge and uh, i think had i not had the tools and the skills to number one have some clear boundaries which we've mm-hmm, been talking about mm-hmm. but also to really know how to engage and share and hear without absorbing other people's pains i, yeah. I think i would have i would have fared very differently during yeah. those difficult times yeah well, I'm sorry for your loss, but it sounds Thank like, you. you know, as a result of all the work that you've been doing, it helped you to navigate some of those difficult things. And yes, so I'm really glad that you did the work prior because, I mean, I think that's so telling that like we need to do the work because mm-hmm. we have future things that we need mm-hmm. to prepare right. for. But Absolutely. you mentioned your identities. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about how you navigate the intersectionality of, of your identities when it comes to sex and relationships. I think that oftentimes we don't think about these things. We're thinking about how it affects like the world around us or maybe in the workplace, but we bring all of our identities into the bedroom and we bring it into our friendships. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about how you navigate that. Yeah. Well, that's a whole podcast series. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's complicated. And my wife, Jill, she identifies as a, a as a black woman. We're often have to be very conscious of all that comes in, right? Because we're we're, we're never just one thing. We're, mm. we're many. Mm-hmm. And we have and have received and are shaped by conflicting messages mm. around class, race, and gender. I remember when we were doing our premarital spiritual counseling, mm-hmm. our, our spiritual advisor, Dr. Jamie Washington, who, oh, who, who yes. was our, our speaker last year at our division convening, he asked us, how do you do power in your relationship? Mm-hmm. And we both just froze and look at each other. We're like, uh-uh. <laughs> um, we do it poorly. It's very nasty. It can be mean. It takes lots of grace to sit in a space where we are making room for each other's experience through our subordinated or oppressed lenses mm-hmm. while also having to own that we come and act out through our dominance, right? So one mm-hmm. of the quotes that I often share in trainings is that we often experience the world through our subordinated and oppressed identities, but engage it and interact it mm-hmm. through our dominant mm-hmm. identities and our privileged identities. That sounds very nice on a podcast. It sounds <laughs> incredibly empowering in a training. I'm like, yeah, that's deep. Reconciling that stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> in the middle of an argument with a partner is like, oh, that's where the self-work right. is. And, and yeah. I think that's what we try to do every day, right? It's like, oof. That's true, but there's also this other dynamic. And sometimes where you have space to hear it, sometimes it takes a little bit of time to come back Mm -hmm. and say, yeah, that dynamic was happening too. Mm -hmm. We have to make room for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. Not doing so, I I feel like for us, as we saw early in our relationship, it it would not allow us to be fully us. And I think it would have – I cannot imagine being in a relationship where we're not having those difficult conversations and making room for for, for the multiple realities that we live. Because we just would not be showing up fully. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's important. Yeah. Especially relationships are extremely vulnerable, extremely vulnerable spaces. You mm-hmm. see, and, you know, folks see me and my partner out, and she's incredible, and I, I don't think I'm too bad. And we're out <laughs> and about, and, and, you know, it's like, you look so in love, and you're so um, so amazing, and you have a beautiful daughter. And it's a lot of work, y'all. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And yeah. you see yourself and one another at, at your worst moments and your best moments. And I can I can picture being in a relationship where I'm not able to fully share all elements of what shapes me as me or to make space for somebody else to do that. And, and that's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes a lot mm-hmm. for you to be able to make yeah. the space and not just take the space. Many of us are good at taking the space. Yeah. I can share, here's what it means <laughs> to be me in this relationship with all these identities. That's easy. But to make the space for someone else to show that and to hear that and honor that, that's that's mm-hmm. hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I feel like what I'm also hearing is some of the, again, I, I go back to some of these like normative beliefs around like, oh, we all hear, oh, relationship takes work. But like, really, it takes mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that Sometimes our media will show us, oh, it's just, it looks easy. You know, we're supposed to make it look easy Mm -hmm. and that it's just nice and beautiful, right? And if there is deep work that we do have to like 
do some internal work for ourselves, yeah. then that's like, oh, no, that's, that's too much for me. <laughs> I'm going to run the other way. Mm-hmm. So I also like that we're bringing up some of those things, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And... <laughs> And sometimes that happens that we have to, to run away for, to. for self-preservation. <laughs> we'll, we'll see if, we, if this stays on later. I'll, I'll, I'll check in with Jill. But, you know, we, we've been together for 13 years, have been married for four, just celebrated our fourth anniversary. You know, there was a time in which we had to separate. We, we had to reconcile the idea of what we thought our relationship was going to be mm-hmm. with the reality of it. And then having all types of realization around, oh, where we got some work to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to either reconcile this, this disconnect, be truly ready and open for what a relationship is going to look like and feel like and what it's going to take. But also realize what are the ugly parts inside of us that unknowingly just creep up and creep out and are having some significant impact. And mm-hmm. uh, and that was a hard moment, right, yeah. uh, of separation. I and mean, we, luckily, we got back together and mm-hmm. I'm very happy. Yeah. Maybe again, you needed that. Yeah, yeah well, we absolutely need yeah. that. And, yeah. and the happiness is the happiness is in, in totality. When we take a step mm-hmm. back, we take joy and comfort in how we've navigated through the bumps. Yeah. So it's not that we are, I don't want to give that impression that, oh, we're happy. We're happy in the progress that we're making together. We're happy right, that yeah. we are still in partnership through the difficult moments and the mm-hmm. hard moments. We're not happy because we're smiling on an Instagram photo in Mexico. <laughs> right, exactly. uh, you will see that on my TikTok, our amazing <laughs> trips to Mexico, but that's not where our true joy comes mm-hmm, from. Right. It comes from the ability to be in partnership together. And you haven't arrived at a place. You're still moving along oh, that journey. Yes. Yeah. Right. Every day. Mm-hmm. Every day. It's always yeah. a journey. Yeah. yeah. But what were some of the dominant messages for you mm-hmm. growing up around sex and relationships? Oh, yeah. It's, that's a great question. Many, and they were conflicting. Mm-hmm. I, I navigated so many spaces, even in my young self and my young body, where I was both growing up in the South Bronx as a Latino man, but also early age going to spaces like in... Uh, Edina, Minnesota, one of the whitest suburbs for some time, and then went mm-hmm. to undergrad in, in Geneva, New York at Hobart with Smith Colleges, really in, in predominant white spaces. I, w- I was often navigating very different cultural contexts, both mm-hmm. what I understood to be and how other folks made sense of me mm-hmm. and how I began to uh, make sense of that as well. Mm-hmm. So dominant messages, specifically, said again, dominant messages about... Sex and relationships. One of the dominant messages that relationship was about sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, I mean, that is growing up, uh, what I saw in the media, uh, but also what I understood it to be. Primarily, mm-hmm. it's about sex. Not even intimacy, just, mm-hmm. just sex. Right? That relationships are about sex. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really how I, that's how I conceptualize relationships. And that was the end goal, mm-hmm. to be in a relationship <laughs> for a very short amount of time or for a long amount of time for the purposes of right being and having sex. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is not what a relationship is. Right. It's much more complex, and it has evolved over time. I will, I will be remiss if I didn't say that. Yeah, this one's gonna be a little tender, but I'm gonna, I think I'm going to share, and then we decide yeah. later if we keep it on. But I also dominant messages I received was that relationships were about violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were about violence, or they they were not about violence, but they contained elements of violence, mm-hmm. and that was hard. Yeah. to make sense of, mm-hmm. of love also being conflated with or connected so mm-hmm. intertwined with harm and violence. And right. that took some time for for me to unpack internally, just mm-hmm. to make sense of what I saw growing up in the media, but even in my own home, and redefine what it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm glad that you shared that, because I think for a lot of people, they grow up seeing those things and thinking that the two equate and then they Mm -hmm. find themselves replicating Mm -hmm. the patterns of their past because they don't unpack all of that. And so it's so important to unpack what love and, you know, respect and intimacy mm-hmm. and sex, all of those things mean to you, yeah. not just in the context of, you know, how you mm-hmm. see it reflected in your, you know, family and the culture around you, whether, you know, that's your specific or, you yeah. know, mine. I mean, my trauma, you know, also includes some of that as well. Mm-hmm. So just mm-hmm. sort of appreciating that. I think that's yeah. important to share. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious what you're saying of these dominant messages that you received from the media and 
we've heard from so many people that sex ed is not a great experience, didn't learn a whole lot about sex and relationships in sex ed. And so I'm curious what you have done to educate yourself over the years about sex and relationships and if there were any resources that you found extremely helpful or hurtful. I'll tell you what's not helpful as a teenage boy, listening to other teenage boys. (laughs) They don't have a clue. So the key to to my learning has been vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And it's been letting go of what I've been told my role needs to be as a man in relationship with a woman sexually and being more open to listening to my partner and what works for her mm-hmm. and what doesn't work for her. Mm-hmm. And what amazes me is that when Jill and I talk to our friends about this, that's not that common. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Jill, you got a good one, huh? Like, <laughs> I listen and, you know, but that's a very vulnerable space, particularly for a man and because of the messages mm-hmm. we receive around yeah, you know, sure. what a sexual relationship ought to be like and, and also how power is playing out in them mm-hmm. and to sort of mm-hmm. pause and say, what's working? Is this yeah. working? And to be open to exploring uh, new things, right? And maybe she's going to ask me to cut that up, but to be open <laughs> to exploring what works, uh, what are the boundaries, revisiting boundaries has been our biggest learning curve, mm-hmm. uh, has been our, our biggest collective learning, but also my individual uh, learning across the relationships that I've had. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to, you know, maybe go back to some of those messages, because I think that one of the, the goals I have is really sort of unpacking some of those messages mm-hmm. that, you know, I think still are gendered. Um, we want to like, say that, you know, it isn't a binary. There's obviously more than one gender, but I think growing up, there's still these messages. And I think men and boys have different messages than sometimes, you know, other genders. And so to unpack, like, what were some of those messages that you received about, like, what it meant to be a man or what it meant to be a man in sex? Um, And maybe unpacking that a little bit for us. Yeah, I I would begin with sex is for pleasure, but for the pleasure of the man, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that was a big one. And again, these are not written out in the book anywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is not like explicitly yeah. said, but very well known. And, and that's, a, that's a huge one because what it does is it limits what the experience can be. Mm-hmm. Power plays out in that message because mm-hmm. it's not a shared experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I find nothing more beautiful than to have a, a sexual experience that is shared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we both mm-hmm. are getting some pleasure out yeah. of it. But that is not what I, I, I saw as a dominant message about sex uh, growing up yeah. with between men and a woman. It's not at all what I saw. You want to repeat the question again? Well, I'm just wondering if there were other messages, right? You're talking about like, maybe, I mean, sometimes people will frame it like toxic masculinity or various different ways in which, you know, I think culture influences how men and boys are expected to behave in different situations and environments, whether that's in relationships and sex. But I think it has a huge impact, even if you don't conform to the binary of that. Mm-hmm. But it's like we're still living in a world that creates these norms that are unhealthy. Right. I agree. And, and in addition to the concept of, of sex being for just pure pleasure and for men, it's also transactional, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, based on what I, what I saw growing up in mm-hmm. media and, and how I've seen relationships and sex occur, it's okay for men to, yeah. to be in multiple relationships for the pure sake of just pleasure, right, mm-hmm, transaction, mm-hmm. and they're not really being an intimacy level to sex aside from the physical act, right? I had to learn that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to learn that. Again, the vulnerability with my partner to be open to hear what works or doesn't work, yeah. that took time to mm-hmm. really get to that place, mm-hmm. but also to begin to understand how deeper it is to both have a, a sexual relationship that's rooted in intimacy. That for a long time in my brain as a man did not compute. Yeah. I was like, well, isn't the objective just to like, <laughs> isn't that the objective? Yeah. Well, and I'll say it. I think sometimes the objective is to orgasm. It's like, oh, I have to get off and that's yeah. it. Right? right. But I also hear what you're saying in that just the fact that you're willing to be vulnerable is to me a gendered norm that doesn't often get brought up. Like mm-hmm. men being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I can't be vulnerable. That's weak. And that's not something that men are supposed to be. Right. So the fact that you're willing to be vulnerable with your partner. Oh, yeah. Especially not during the act, mm-hmm. especially not during sexual acts. Yeah. Right. In which it's in terms of masculinity, that is the epitome of masculinity itself. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the power that comes with being in charge in that relationship. Yeah. And anything less than that, it, there's undercurrents, of course, of vulnerability or gentleness in that act has subtleties and undertones of 
of homophobia, right? Mm-hmm. That that's just that's not what you do. Yeah. That's not what a man does, uh, or at least not a man's man, right? Mm-hmm. So there's elements to that that uh, intertwine with concepts of sort of heteronormativity and yeah. homophobia as well. And also yeah. a little bit it, when you think about, like you're saying that the idea is you know sex is for the pleasure of the man only. But even even if somebody thinks like, oh, I've been with all these women and they've told me that sex with me is great and mm-hmm. the best they've ever had. And so then to be vulnerable and actually ask a person mm-hmm. what they actually want and need might be a little bruising to an ego of mm-hmm. like, well, but everybody else I've had sex with had such a great time. So I don't need to ask you individually what what is right for you. And that feels also similar in like a little bit of power and a little bit of ego there that comes with some of the the masculinity. And so I think that the breaking down that and getting to that vulnerable place and, and acknowledging like, if I want to pleasure this person, mm-hmm. I need to know what they want. And I can't read her mind. And yeah. And those kinds of things. And I'd be remiss if I said it started from with me, right? <laughs> That's not always, I think, how it works. I, I would love to take credit for it. But I, I think it foundationally, there has to be trust in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And but Jill, Jill has her own set of toys, right? Mm-hmm. And I had questions about that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, well, why do you need that? Mm-hmm. Seriously, right? Mm-hmm. It was the concept yeah. of the idea of why are there other things here if, if you have me? Uh, and I had one or two ways to respond to that, right? My learned way of saying, you don't need that. Get rid of that. That's mm-hmm. not appropriate. Will not be at play mm-hmm. whenever we're having intimate, whenever mm-hmm. we're having relations. Or to say, all right, tell me a little bit more. Tell me mm-hmm. a little bit more about what this does and how this works for you. Yeah. And that was very vulnerable. And I had to lean into it. But yeah. I didn't, this is someone that I love. The last thing I wanted to do was, first of all, She's a grown woman. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling her to get rid of anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I might be able to say that. I might think I could say that. But that's mm-hmm. not happening. Yeah. If you know Jill, you know that's not happening. <laughs> just, it's not happening. So how do I respond differently? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because what I what would be worse is that I'm not listening or factoring in what her needs are and that she turns around and is you know, she still has needs and, mm-hmm. and that we can't be open and honest about what some of those needs are. I think that yeah. feels like more of a betrayal mm-hmm. uh, than what was actually happening there, which was uh, a, a, a fine tune and acute awareness of what worked for Jill. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think also there is the bruising of someone or sort of the internalization mm-hmm. that someone might experience in that moment and sort of trying to depersonalize it. And so that's what I hear was happening for you. It's like, okay, well, initially, I'm going to be like, oh, that means I'm not good enough for my partner. Mm-hmm. I'm not enough, right. right? But instead, you're sort of choosing to be curious and choosing to be vulnerable to say, hmm, maybe that's not the story I should tell myself. Yeah. Maybe I can include my partner and say, tell me more. Yeah. Why is this Absolutely. important to you? So I really like that, you know, it's not you internalizing. Because I think all of us do this all of the time. Unfortunately, it's <laughs> such an automatic thing that we do is internalize it, personalize it, make it about us. And we need to be curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. We also tend to give ourselves so much more grace, but be so rigid in how we interpret mm. other people's <laughs> intentions. <laughs> I find that to be true. I do that on an almost daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. I've had a bad day. I've had a long day. This is what's going on. Yeah. Jill, you're just not attentive. And <laughs> you know, it's no, it's, it's how do we just pause and, and give others as, as much grace and, and not personalize it and, yeah. and be curious more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. If you could go back and give your younger self some advice when you were first becoming sexually active, like, or experiencing sexual urges, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Do some of what you're doing already. (laughs) (laughs) It's healthy and not a bad thing. And you won't lose an eye. Uh, (laughs) So continue to trust yourself and what you're doing. And really do not listen to your peers. They really don't have a clue what they're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Talk to other folks who can give you some perspective. Talk mm-hmm. to trusted people in your family who can mm-hmm. give you some perspective. Yeah. Older people. Yeah. Don't listen to other teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think you would have gone to in your family? Like who are some influential people in your world that influenced you either sexually or relationally? Who do I feel like would have given me the best advice versus what I would have felt comfortable? Because again, there's mm-hmm. so many different things. I think um, although my family was rather and I and I love this, and I think given our 
sort of U.S. American context, when I say this, folks sometimes are a little like, oh, my family was rather open in how, how they discussed. We we're too young. <laughs> we got to listen, but we we're not participating <laughs> in those conversations. But they were rather open in conversations around intimacy and sex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was rather normalized. The shame came from those transitional years, things that happen through puberty when everyone's mm-hmm. talking about it, but no one knows what the heck they're talking about. Mm-hmm. That's really where the shame came from. And I, I wish that I did not have the shame. And I would honestly... I would talk. I don't know who I would talk to. <laughs> Did your parents ever have the talk, quote unquote, with you? Uh, no, or it wasn't. Really it, just it, wasn't the... it wasn't a structured sit down mm-hmm. conversations. It was just you listening to them talking. Uh, everyone, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a, a topic of conversation, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a humorous one or a funny one or a sad one, but it came up. Yeah, yeah. My family. And culturally, we're just very open about talking about history and past, both good and bad. So there wasn't much that was that, – that much was shielded because you mm-hmm. learn more when you get older. Mm-hmm. And much was sort of stripped away for just for a bit of sensitivity. But, you know, you hear stories uh, of trauma but also stories of – I hear my mom talking about my dad as, as her first – Right. Mm-hmm. And they sort of went apart and lived their own lives and had separate children, and then came together. And, and then I came and my brother came. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, it was just regular part of our discourse and, and topics. But mm-hmm. yeah, I can't answer the who I would talk to question because I think I'm still find myself uh, responding based on the shame of mm-hmm. uh, that was so embedded in me during that time, mm-hmm. age, which is. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. I'm yeah. just like so reflecting on that. I need yeah. to unpack that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Have you thought about how you would have these conversations with your daughter? Yes. Yes, very much so. Mm. It's not rational. <laughs> uh, it's not rational. It's not realistic. It's sort of dad of a two-year-old, like, yeah, this is not happening. Don't ever do it, right? Which is not <laughs> So what I can say is Jill will likely have a conversation with her. And we've talked about this a little bit because I think my conversation with, with Ayana is going to be about her, her worth, her value, and mm-hmm. her voice. Mm-hmm. Which is also important. Which is critically important. Yeah, it's part and of yeah. sex it's conversation one too. one of the conversations, right? right? Yeah. More of the details around... What works just, I think, for Ayana's comfort will, will come from her mom. Yeah. But conversations around consent and her voice and value, I, that's my role is huge in reinforcing that. Yeah. And part of the hard thing about raising a young, a young, a baby girl uh, in our US context and the way it clashes with our sort of, sort of some of my cultural background of how we raise kids is that Ayana has voice and agency. I grew up where children do not have any of those. Mm-hmm. And I am so adamant that it is important for us to not silence, right? So I, I grew up, you know, kids are to be seen, not heard. Mm-hmm. And that is counter to the way I know I have to, we have to raise Ayana mm-hmm. as, as a young woman of color. It's important for her to know that she has voice, she has agency, right? So mm-hmm. I sometimes want to hug. And if she says no, yeah. it's no. Yeah. And that's important. And yeah. there's never malicious intent, right? But I remember growing up where, like, I didn't want to hug nobody or say hi to mm-hmm. nobody or kiss nobody. <laughs> but, you know, the uncles and aunts come in and they just, like, give mm-hmm. you a kiss and mm-hmm. squeeze you in. And I was like, oh, leave me alone, right? <laughs> I don't want Ayana to have that experience. She gets yeah. to say no. Mm-hmm. As much as it might break my heart some days. Because mm-hmm. yeah. she's like, nope, you don't get a hug from me. She doesn't <laughs> say all those words. She just says no. Mm-hmm. But what I hear is, no, daddy, I don't want to hug you. And I'm like, no. Yeah, yeah, she gets to yeah. have that voice and agency. It's yeah. important. Right. Yeah. I think that is important. And as adults, I think we also have to model emotion regulation, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're showing here, okay, the no is okay. I can mm-hmm. be safe with the no. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, daddy's yes. showing me that like no, you know, I can receive that no and be okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's great that even though mm-hmm. she might not understand a lot of these concepts now, mm-hmm. that that you and your wife are talking about it and, oh, and understand absolutely. the importance of of these things that that can help her grow into valued and, and like have, have that self-worth that you're hoping that she can have. I don't know why. It's, it's, it, it, it was always a part of the dis- discourse, even when we're talking about having a mm-hmm. family, as we hope to at some point have a boy. We talk about, we, we currently talk about now what those messages are going to be mm-hmm. and making sure that for me, a lot of self-work to make sure that I'm not unintentionally reinforcing some problematic messages for, mm-hmm. for right. the baby boy as well. Yeah. So how has your understanding of pleasure evolved over time? Oh, that's a great question. I'm going to connect that back to my response about the vulnerability of being open to inquire, to ask uh, what your partner needs, 
and what works for them. Mm -hmm. And if there's ever a stronger recommendation for that level of vulnerability for men or for folks who are not comfortable being vulnerable in, in sexual relationships, I promise you it's worth it mm. because just the pleasure that comes from broad sense of intimacy, both sexual and non-sexual, mm -hmm. when you're able to really engage and hear what works and and share what mm -hmm. works for you and what you desire, yeah. it just increases, right? Mm -hmm. It's It just yeah. increases the ability for you to experience pleasure at multiple levels, at all types of levels, in all forms of intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. I think the vulnerability and the willingness to lean in and hear and also share, mm -hmm. right? Because I think that's the hard part, too. It's just mm -hmm. making space to hear, but also to share what works for you, what your, your needs are, I think just opens up the door to deeper levels of intimacy and mm -hmm. pleasure. Mm -hmm. It's just great. So yeah. Who doesn't want that? Yeah. yeah. I also like that you're touching on the various different forms of intimacy. I think when mm -hmm. a lot of people think about pleasure and that here's just another one of those social norms, they instantly connect it to sex, mm -hmm. right? But like there's a lot of different forms of intimacy, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, experiential, all of these different forms that yes. can also be pleasurable and you can, you know, have a fulfilling experience if you're engaging in one or more with a person and whether that's your romantic or sexual mm -hmm. partner or if it's other folks, right? Like mm -hmm. sex doesn't have to be the only way you engage in pleasure. Mm -hmm. So I really like that you're sort of touching yeah. on some of those things. Oh, absolutely. It, when Joe and I first got together, the vast majority of our intimacy was sexual. Mm -hmm. And it was great. Mm -hmm. And that was really incredible. And as we've evolved, as we've developed, as we've gotten older, and as we've explored just what intimacy could be beyond that, it's it's only increased. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now we have, I think, a much more well-rounded sense of what intimacy is and what works for us. And the reason that's important is because relationships develop, they evolve, mm -hmm. one grows, mm -hmm. one has children, right? So when mm -hmm. your lot of intimacy is only solely in one bucket, if something doesn't happen, and you know, folks experience trauma, and there's things that sometimes can inhibit a specific type of intimacy, then you sort of just closed off your door to connection with your partner. Mm -hmm. And I love that. We have a child, but yet we have a very well-rounded and balanced mm -hmm. uh, sense of intimacy together in, in, in many yeah. dimensions and domains, which I love. Yeah. yeah. I love hearing about your relationship. It sounds like a really, I don't know, evolving <laughs> and shifting and changing. I wonder if you can share with us a little bit more about like what a healthy relationship looks like for, for you or has that evolved and changed over time? Mm. Yes. Jill and I often say that the breakdown was necessary for the buildup. Yeah, it's changed. I, I think, you know... It, when we first got together, I thought a healthy relationship was, here's a vision. Here's what it needs to be. I was very clear about what it is and what it wasn't. I'm very clear that, Jill, isn't this what you want to be a part of? Yep. Then we're going to do this and then we'll <laughs> move on. And if you don't, I don't understand why you wouldn't want to mm -hmm. be a part of this very rigorous, very regimented type of relationship. And a healthy relationship is the opposite of that. A healthy mm -hmm. relationship is one that has space for folks to adapt and to adopt, to adapt to the realities of the time mm -hmm. in a way that still leaves everyone feeling good. It is the ability to adapt to the challenges of any given moment. I solely believe in my heart, and you and I say this often, um, a relationship, we do not think that a relationship is 50-50. Mm -hmm. We think that it's a relationship is, uh, is it requires at least 50% of effort. But at any given time, one person has given more than the other. Mm -hmm. And it's the ability to communicate what one can give and what one needs that really gets you through it. Mm -hmm. And in this transition to this new place, this new role, right? Mm -hmm. Jill's from Ohio. She's not mm -hmm. from New York City. I am. That's, you know, that, that makes some things unique. Mm -hmm. She likes to shop in supermarkets and take her time. We don't do that in New York. You just go in there and grab what you want. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's been some adapting and, and shifting of, along with having a new baby in this time mm -hmm. has required that in some elements of our lives, Jill has to uh, has to give more. And in other elements, I have to give a lot more because mm -hmm. I cannot, right? Uh, it's it's never for us 50-50, but we're fully committed to it. Yeah. And then there's times, particularly when Jill started her job, mm -hmm. that I needed to reshift what I was holding for, for us collectively. Yeah. Yeah. I think and that's really helpful to yeah. hear. Yeah. And I think that the the biggest piece I heard there was the the communication. Mm -hmm. Both yeah. the communicating what you need and where you're at and trusting that your partner will be able to kind of carry you through that period. And then when they 
have needs or are not fully able to give, then hopefully you have that ability to give. But I think that communication yeah. piece is, is huge in, in communicating those those mm-hmm. needs. And we and we play to our strengths during those difficult moments, mm-hmm. but also help each other grow in the time when times are more stable. Mm-hmm. To be a little bit more specific. I grew up poor. I didn't grow up working class. I grew up mm-hmm. poor. Finances are my jam. I can show you uh, my budget for every pay cycle back till when I first started getting paid and where wow. all my funds go. Not Jill's strengths. Mm-hmm. It's not her strength. Mm-hmm. So when things are tough, I know that I've got us. We, mm-hmm. we have our sort of financial. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean this is how a conversation around how one does power. It doesn't mean that I hold all the financials. It mm-hmm. means that I keep us afloat and I, and I have my skill set that's going to make sure that our systems and pieces are in place. Mm-hmm. And when Jill has capacity, she sort of picks up a next piece. Mm-hmm. Just an example of how we yeah. sort of share. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's naming one of the key things that I talk about in one of my workshops is what involves a healthy relationship and it's equity, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's not that like everything has to be exactly balanced, but like there are going to be times where, you know, someone's going to be better at something and Mm -hmm. the other person's going to need your support, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that equity is something that so often students in the workshop are like, they'll, they'll talk about, you know, honesty and you know, intimacy and trust and safety, but they miss the equity, por- equity yeah. piece of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm that's what I'm hearing, oh, yeah. you know, and what you're saying is that equity piece. Absolutely. Jill's strength is keeping us um, spiritually grounded. Mm-hmm. When I'm at my most stressed, that's, I put that on the back burner right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she is great at keeping us in some form or fashion, spiritually grounded. If that's yeah. even if that's just saying grace before we have a meal, mm-hmm. or making the arrangements to make sure we get to where we need to, <laughs> to services we need to, but it helps us out. But it's yeah. right, it's that equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. How important is sex in your life, and how often do you talk about it? Who do you talk about it with? Mm-hmm. In our life or, or for our relationship? Well, maybe it's both. Yeah. However, you want to interpret that. For us, it's very important. Mm-hmm. It's not the only thing or the most important thing, yeah. but it's important. Mm-hmm. And we talk about it often and a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that's all I'll share. About yeah, it. We absolutely. talk about it often and a lot. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 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 How do you navigate and negotiate the the balance between emotional and intellectual intimacy and physical intimacy in your relationships? And how do they complement or challenge each other for you? The the balance is what's the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Because Again, as life happens and so many things are going on, one of us may be craving one form of intimacy more than the other. Yeah. But the other partner might be only able to give. <laughs> right. Um, mm-hmm. Intellectually, for example, mm-hmm. uh, when the other person may be craving touch, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and that's, they're all connected and can sustain for some time, right? So if we mm-hmm. don't, we're not having much uh, emotional intimacy. We're having physical intimacy or, mm-hmm. or sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is different than emotional intimacy, just so yeah. folks know. Yeah. Yeah. But sexual intimacy can sustain you for some bit. But yeah. at some point, you're like, okay, I, I, we need to connect emotionally. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so they're all intertwined. But the key for us is having being open and honest when mm-hmm. the balance is off. And here's another thing. Naming that the balance is off doesn't mm-hmm. always equal mm-hmm. right. rebalance. Taking mm-hmm. care of it, yeah. 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 That's yeah. another set of yeah, – that's yeah. also work, but it's also acknowledging capacity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When my husband and I started dating, I told him that I'm like a quality time person and I mm-hmm. really want to spend time with, with somebody, friends, family, partner, whoever it is. And he understood that to mean it's okay if we just sit on the couch and watch TV <laughs> together because we're together. together. Yeah. And I had to, I kind of, this was so early in our relationship. And so I was trying to bottle it in and bottle it in. And then I just kind of exploded and maybe like a couple months into dating. And I was like, I don't even know if you want kids. And I was like, I just feel like we just (laughs) sit on the couch and watch TV and we're not actually having important conversations. And he was like, well, I didn't know. Like I I thought, you know, you just wanted to be together. I didn't know that the the quality time meant that you wanted to have deep conversations or or all of those things. And so it really is about that communication. Like he knew I wanted to spend time and he's like, okay, great. Mm -hmm. I'll come spend time with you. But but the actual like conversations and that emotional intimacy, I think, yeah. is what I was yeah. missing. And so I think I think that's spot on. And, and being yeah. able to communicate that was important. And well, and I think always like defining everything. Like we mm-hmm. we talk about this a lot, but I might have an impression of what respect is, but yours mm-hmm. might be different. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Like it's exhausting. That's why mm-hmm. relationships are at work, yeah, right? Absolutely. But so we're at our last question. What does good sex mean to you? Oh, good sex means communication. Mm-hmm. broad sense of intimacy and pleasure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good one. 
Yeah. Is it okay to leave that brief? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it's been wonderful having this conversation with you. I'm so glad that, yeah. that you are willing to come and chat today and share about your life. And are there places that, you know, you are very student forward and student facing, but where, where can people find you and how can people get connected to you? Oh, absolutely. Well, we are, our offices are located in Kimmel Center, Suite 601, and we offer a broad range of resources. But really what we are is a, a guiding place for our students. If they're not sure where to start or just need some help figuring out how to tap into the vast resources we have at mm-hmm. NYU, we're a good starting place for mm-hmm. folks and we'll get them connected to the right place. They can always email dean of students at nyu.edu, visit Great. us at the Kimmel Center. I might be in your inbox <laughs> with some messages throughout the school year. And you will definitely see me out and about at either um, student club event meetings, some athletic events. I'm, I'm typically out and about. So if you're watching us and you recognize me from the from the uh, recognize me from today, just feel free to stop by and say hi. Great. Well, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate you coming here and being vulnerable. Yeah, mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Great. Thanks. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback, as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone... NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673, the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Baini-Amisa, Zoe Ragusios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. 